Well, good morning, everybody. We are uh, reading Mark's gospel together, and this morning, um, in very much the way like we did last week, we're going to look at some teaching from Jesus uh, that comes in response to people around him. Uh, in this case, Jesus responds to a test from the Pharisees uh, and to some really block-headed action um, by his disciples. This section in Mark's gospel, I think, could easily be called uh, women and children first for reasons that I hope will be obvious to us before we're done. So let me read from Mark 10 for us. You can follow along uh, in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Mark 10. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just uh, sang together those ancient words of the psalm about looking up to the hills and wondering where our help will come from. And so we ask, Father, that we, we would find right now in this moment that, that all of us here would experience that as truth, that we would be looking to you and that we would find our help. This word that we have read and heard together, Father, that Jesus taught us, would you use it by the power of your spirit to meet every one of us in whatever place we find ourselves this morning? Um, those of us who feel really close to you and those of us who feel far from you, those of us who are in faith, who are outside of faith, those of us for whom everything is going pretty well, those of us for whom everything is going pretty awfully. Father, meet us through these words that we have read and heard together and show us the word that is incarnate, our elder brother Jesus, and change us by his grace. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, let me uh, tell you something that I uh, do to my kids. I'd like to say I do it with my kids, but basically I do it to my kids. Um, 
Occasionally, when one of them walks into the room where I am or I walk into the place where they are, I will mumble a certain phrase um, under my breath. So I'll say the phrase, I, I say, um, Dork says what? <laughs> Sometimes I switch it up and say, Knucklehead says what? But I don't say it that clearly. I mumble it under my breath so that they can't hear it. Now some of you will need to think about what's going on there, but for those of you who don't know, I will explain to you what's supposed to happen. They're not supposed to hear exactly what I say, and they're supposed to say, what? At which point I start laughing like a hyena because, you know, they're a dork or a knucklehead or whatever it is. I probably try that um, 20 times a week on <laughs> my kids, and they basically never fall for it, which is incredibly disappointing. It's been months since I have uh, gotten one of them to fall for that, but every once in a while, every once in a while, um, when they're tired or one of them is not on their guard or maybe they're just trying to be nice to their old man, every once in a while one of them will go, what? And it makes all of my failures worth it. And if you've ever had kids or um, been around kids of a certain age for very long, you know that there are a boatload, a whole genre really, of riddles and word games and um, puzzles like that that are all designed with the same goal in mind, and that is to make somebody else say something dumb. Cora, uh, my 10-year-old, told me one this week that was so good that I tried it out on Pastor Dave on, on Friday afternoon. He totally fell for it. It was incredibly satisfying. And so that is pretty much exactly what's happening at the beginning of the story that we just read together. And it is, in many ways, just as juvenile. Mark tells us that Jesus and the disciples had traveled to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and as we've seen over and over again in Mark's gospel, these huge crowds gather around Jesus and he is teaching them, and the Pharisees show up. And Mark says they came up to him to ask him a question in order to test him. If you'll let me put it like this, they want to make Jesus say something dumb. This happens a bunch of times in the Gospels over and over again. It's usually the Pharisees who are behind it. They ask Jesus a question, not because they really care what he has to say, not because they really want to know the answer, but because what they're hoping is that his answer will get him in trouble with the crowds or with the authorities, or if they're really lucky, it'll get them in, Jesus in trouble with both of them. And in this case, I think Mark has already given us everything that we need to know to understand what was behind this particular escapade. He's told us where Jesus is, the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. That is John the Baptist's old stomping grounds. This is where John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, did all of his baptizing and all of his fiery preaching. This is presumably exactly the place where John the Baptist called out the puppet King Herod on a bunch of stuff, including his marriage to his current wife, Herodias. Now, we talked about this way, way back at the uh, end of February, and if you were here, you might remember what the story behind that was. Herod had convinced Herodias to divorce uh, her husband, Philip, who also happened to be Herod's half-brother, so that he could marry her. And John the Baptist fearlessly told Herod, that's not right. 
That is not right, Herod. And you may also remember that this eventually cost John his head. He was executed for what he said about the king's marriage. So it should surprise absolutely zero people that the Pharisees, who have been conspiring with Herod's people for years now to get Jesus, who are literally standing in the spot where John the Baptist stood, it should surprise no one that they come to Jesus and they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? I mean, they must have known that Jesus' answer was going to be something like John's answer. They don't care at all what Jesus thinks about marriage or divorce. They just want him to say something that will get him caught in hot water. But as fearless as John was, they have never met anyone nearly as fearless as Jesus. And he does not care about their games. And he uses this moment to continue to teach along the same lines that he has been teaching them since the last time he told them he was headed to Jerusalem to die. He continues to teach them that true greatness is found in becoming the servant of all, that true greatness is found when we serve and receive the last and the least, the ones who have no recourse in this world, the ones with no power in this world the ones of no account in this world. Jesus says, serving them is greatness. If you want to be first, you must be the servant of all and the last of all. So we'll come back to how Jesus teaches about that. But first, let me say that I know that divorce is a really difficult and painful subject for many of us here this morning. I mean, my guess is that most of us here, maybe every one of us here, has been at least indirectly affected by divorce in the lives and in the families of people that we know. And of course, many of our own lives and our own families have been affected directly by divorce, including my own. And so I think it's helpful for us to keep in mind as we think about Jesus' teaching here to remember that he is not here answering or dealing with or caring for a divorced person, he is answering a test that is meant to make him fall. And if you want to see how Jesus cares for a divorced person, you should absolutely read John 4. John 4 is where Jesus meets a woman who had essentially given up on marriage, who had been married five times before. And Jesus' compassion and his truth and his mercy and his grace to that woman that day were genuinely breathtaking. He upended every social norm, every cultural norm, basically that was placed on him in that day. Because of the grace that Jesus shows to that woman, she very literally becomes a new person that day. And more than that, after hearing from Jesus themselves, the villagers that she lives with come to the conclusion that Jesus is the savior of the world. I mean it, you should read John 4 this afternoon. Jesus brings healing and grace and love into that kind of pain. So we keep that in our heads as we approach Jesus answering this question and teaching after the Pharisees ask him their question. And as Jesus often does, he answers the question with a question of his own. He says, well, what did Moses command you 
Now the Pharisees have no idea that just asking that is a trap, so they immediately cite Deuteronomy 24 to Jesus. Well, they say, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and put his wife away. To which Jesus responds, he wrote that because of the hardness of your heart. So what does Jesus mean? Well, first, if it's not completely obvious from the way that the Pharisees asked the question, I mean, with almost zero exceptions, the right to declare a divorce or go after a divorce was the right of husbands and not wives. That was true in Moses' day, and it continued to be true in Jesus' day. There were differences, of course, in pockets of Greco-Roman culture, and the royalty could do whatever they wanted. But among Jesus' peers, husbands had the say, and wives did not. So what would happen to a woman, to her children, when a husband decided that he didn't want to be married to her anymore? Well, they would often be abandoned sometimes brutally abandoned and left to fend for themselves in the world. It meant, more often than not, instant overnight poverty and dissolution. This is the hardness of heart that Jesus is talking about. So Jesus says, you know what Moses was doing? Moses was making a concession to this hardness of heart. He was doing a concession move he didn't endorse divorce. He didn't give everyone, anyone grounds for divorce. Instead, Moses develops this compromise situation to mediate the fallout that existed for women and children. The certificate that the Pharisees refer to specifically allowed a woman to remarry so that she could have a chance in life. And Jesus makes this crystal clear. This was a legal concession to account for hardness of heart. It is hardly the ideal, and it is not the way God intended things to be. And that's the place where Jesus moves next to the intention of creation. He starts quoting from Genesis 1 and 2, some of which Andrew read to us this morning in the Old Testament lesson. Jesus goes back way before the concession all the way back to the beginning to creation. And he says, but from the beginning of creation, God created the male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is saying that in marriage, God is still creating. He is still making things. They are no longer two, Jesus says. They are now one. And to this citation from scripture and commentary on scripture, Jesus adds one last line of his own teaching. In church, there is no way for me to possibly account for how stunning this would have been to the people who heard it that day. There is no possible way I could overstate how unsettling and troubling and, and how much it would have shaken the foundations of just about everyone who was listening. I mean, I wish this was not true, but some religious teachers in Jesus' day, some of his contemporaries said that men could divorce their wives if their wives messed up a meal or if they did anything they didn't like or if they found someone they liked better. 
And it is into this wildly permissive and incredibly cruel and cold-hearted culture that Jesus speaks. And he says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Church, this is what Jesus is saying. He is saying, in my kingdom, in this gracious and peaceable rule that I have come to announce, that I have come to embody in this world, in, in this people, among these people who I'm calling to myself, women and children will no longer be thrown off with no regard. They will not be treated as if they are appendages that can be tossed away at a whim. They will not be treated as property for whom anything can be done, to whom anything can be done. Jesus is saying the time for that concession is over. It is time to return to the intention in which and for which God created the world and marriage. It shouldn't surprise us at all that Jesus is saying this. I mean, over the last two weeks, we've heard him teach again and again about true greatness and about serving the last and serving the least and serving the ones who have no power, the little ones with no power, no recourse, no regard in this world. He's been saying it again and again. And so Jesus teaches here in a way that upends the social order of his day and he replaces it with God's intention for creation and for marriage. And Jesus' teaching later in the house with the disciples just underlines this. In order to emphasize this intention for lifelong marriage and fidelity within it, Jesus says to divorce and then to remarry is to commit adultery. Now, Jesus isn't outlining case law here. He isn't talking about what we sometimes call exceptions or legitimate grounds for divorce. Jesus does teach about those things in other places. So does the Apostle Paul. The church has always recognized that there are some things like infidelity and abuse and abandonment that break the bonds of marriage. And the church has always recognized that this church our church, your church, takes those things seriously and walks alongside women and men in situations like that with what I hope approaches something like the same kind of grace and love and care that Jesus showed to people in those situations. Jesus here is simply laying out the clear intention for marriage, that it's for life that you cannot cast it off lightly, that no man or woman should separate it. And that means that people, the, the people that Jesus is calling to himself, they have to be willing to lay themselves down to fight for it. In Jesus' day, this teaching was absolutely revolutionary and people called it difficult and idealistic. And I don't need to tell you that today, people still call it difficult and idealistic. But there is something latent in Jesus' teaching that we absolutely cannot miss. If he's saying that the time is over for the concession to hard hearts, then he, if, if he's saying that that's over, then he must know that there is something better out there on the horizon. 
And of course, it's not a mystery to us in the way that it might have been for those who were hearing Jesus that day because we know where Jesus is headed. He is headed to Jerusalem to a cross where he takes all of our failure, all of our sin, all of our hard-heartedness and cold-heartedness. He takes all of that stuff on his shoulders and he does away with their blame in our lives and their power in our lives forever. And his resurrection and his ascension create a people on whom the Spirit descends. And what that means is that people like you and me who have followed Jesus in repentance and faith have access to this grace in which we stand. That is the power that we have to live as we have been called to live. And more than that, in that grace we don't stand alone. We stand in this communion of saints, sisters and brothers who stand ready to help, ready to pray, ready to love. And that communion of saints is the people on whom the Spirit has fallen to give supernatural power to live in even the most difficult and trying of situations. And church, I want you to know, I need you to know, those are not words only. That's not some ideal that's floating off somewhere that sounds really good, but that we don't have access to. I want you to know there are couples in our church, there are women in our church, there are men in our church who have faced the most difficult things that marriages can bring. There are people all around you who have suffered some of the deepest wounds that marriage can bring, and they have found grace, and they have found hope, and they have found healing. So if you are in a difficult spot, ask for help. That is what we are here for as the communion of saints who live as those forgiven by Christ and given the power of the Spirit. That's why we are here together. So Mark shifts the scene. We don't know if they're still in the same house where Jesus did this teaching or if some time has passed, but what we do know is now parents are bringing their children to Jesus so that he can lay his hands on them and touch them and bless them. It's just about the most beautiful scene you can imagine, which is by why it's been immortalized in art for centuries, including our beautiful stained glass window right there. And all of that makes it all the more jarring when Mark tells us that as the parents are bringing the children to Jesus, they rebuke them. They try to stop them from bringing their kids. If you were here two weeks ago, you might remember that we talked about the normal first century view of children. Unlike in our culture, in the first century, children were not viewed with much regard at all. Certainly, families had affection for their kids, moms and dads and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and grandparents. But outside of the family, in the culture at large and society at large, and even from the viewpoint of other families, children were almost without exception the last category of humans that were ever considered. 
Two weeks ago, I read a list of words that were used to describe children in Jesus' day, and I think it's worth hearing them again. This is how children were viewed in the first century. Insignificant, powerless, vulnerable, subject, needy, socially invisible, ignored, dominated, little esteemed, non-productive, helpless, dependent, burdens. But you know, Jesus held this little baby in his arms and he upended all of that by telling his disciples that children were to be received and served and that if they did that, we would in fact be receiving and serving God himself. So honestly, it's shocking <laughs> that they have forgotten that so quickly and that they have fallen back into their old habits and into their old ways of thinking. They figure Jesus should not be bothered with his insignificant children, but Jesus sees this and Mark says he is indignant. Jesus says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so, of course, Jesus' teaching here is first another affirmation, another in that line of teaching that he has been on, that the last and the least, the ones with no status, no power, nothing to commend themselves, they are to be served, they are to be received in the kingdom of God. And so it's not just Jesus saying these things, he is embodying these things and he will do it over and over and over again until the cross. But his teaching here is also a challenge to people like us to people like you and me. Because to receive the kingdom like, like a child, it means that we need to open our hands in humility. To take Jesus' teaching seriously here is to see ourselves in some of those words that I just read. To admit that spiritually speaking, we have nothing to commend ourselves. We are needy and vulnerable and powerless and dependent on him and his grace. As Jesus says elsewhere, blessed are the poor in spirit. The way up is down. This is what Jesus has been saying to his friends over and over and over again since they admitted to him that they knew who he was. And the open question at this point in Mark's story is, will they listen to him? And will we? And the good news about children is that when it comes to a child receiving a gift, they are much more willing to simply receive it than to think that they have to earn it. And this is Jesus' gracious invitation to you and me. It's a gracious invitation that maybe we hear for the first time this morning, or maybe we're hearing it as a call to return again. 
Jesus' gracious invitation is to receive the kingdom like a child. Let me pray for us. Father, through your spirit, work whatever you need to do in us as individuals and in us as a church to become like children in this incredibly crucial way. <laughs> to become like children in the way that Jesus has called us to become like children. That we would be people who would be happy to open up our hands and receive this gift of grace that we have been given for our good. Father, that we would then in turn be able to, in the way that we have been loved, love the world around us and the people around us and love into incredibly difficult situations and into incredibly hard relationships. Father, do what you need to do to work that in us for our good and for the good of this broken world around us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.